Well, I figured out as I was driving up here that, hello, Pete and I have known, or I have known you, Pete, for half of my life. Is that scary? It's a little scary. I know. It's scary when those things happen, when we know that we've known each other for that long. But eight, yeah, we met just a few years ago. Pete and I used to have to spend about eight to 10 hours together every day for about two years because we would drive to all these schools and do these retreats, and the retreats were six, six hours long. Sometimes we'd drive four hours together, so we got to know each other very well. And soon after he started doing these family camps, he started inviting me to come. And I'm like, I don't have any kids. Whoops. And he's like, I'm going to move forward because I'm going to do that th three or four times today, and I'd like to not fall on my first time of you meeting me. So... Finally, we decided we are just going to go. My husband and I decided we'd come to our first winter weekend, and that year was the year that I had had back surgery because, ironically, I got in a car accident on the way to a retreat, hit by a teacher who we were going to be then ministering to. That's another story. I'll talk about that later. So we came up here, and I had just had back surgery, and so I was still on a lot of medication. So let's just say I don't remember a whole lot about that first <laughs> retreat. But one thing I remember is that I would go to the sessions, and then in the afternoon, I would go back to our cabin, and I would sleep. I would sleep all afternoon. My husband would terrorize small children on the boot hockey rink or in the pool, and he loves that. That's his thing. And so you're kind of lucky he's not here because your children might actually live to see the end of the weekend. The second time we came, I was pregnant, was not supposed to be, but was because of the whole back thing. And so I was on modified bed rest which means I was allowed to be up for about six hours a day. So that year I did the same thing. Come here, sing, I'd listen to the speaker, then I'd go home and sleep all afternoon. So I would actually go home on Monday very well rested. <laughs> now, I've noticed that since I've had kids and started bringing them to winter weekend, that does not happen. In fact, I am definitely less well rested when I go home now that I have the kids than I was when I was a little bit more ill. But kids do change things a little bit, don't they? They change the way that we experience vacations, most of all. Last year, we went to Disney World. And if any of you have been there, you know that when you return from Disney World, you are not well rested. Because there is so much to do. And one of our favorite things to do when we go there is go to the water parks. And we are just water people, and we go during the heat of the season. So it is just Africa hot there. And we spend an entire day at Typhoon Lagoon and an entire day at Blizzard Beach. And if you've been there, you know that Blizzard Beach has the second tallest, the world's second tallest free fall water slide. And I have a picture of it if you haven't been there. This is at Blizzard Beach. You can kind of see it. It's kind of like a ski jump thing. And so what happens is it's 120 feet tall. And it boasts speeds of 60 miles per hour. Your body going 60 miles per hour in a free fall drop. So of course, we had to go. Now, they did have a height restriction at 48 inches. So I just passed, unfortunately. <laughs> and they said, my kids are like, you're going. So we get up there, and there's a 22-year-old with that height stick, you know, that striped height stick. And she's giving us instructions. And here are her instructions. OK, when you get on the slide, lie down feet first. Cross your legs at the ankle, because this will help you go straight. I'm like, OK. And then she said, now cross your arms over your chest like this. This will protect your arms and your torso. And I'm like, 
what do I have to protect my torso from? I mean, what in the world is going on? But you can understand that she did want us to be safe. And then she looks at me and she says, you, you'll want to hold on to your swimsuit. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's a lot to take on when the view looks like this. Take a look at this view. This is what it looks like, and I'm putting my nine-year-old, of course, on this thing, and me too. So then I came to understand that you need to follow those directions. So what happens is you go down the slide, it lasts less than 10 seconds, but during those 10 seconds, you go into a very dark tunnel. So 90% of your ride is in the dark. And so you are clinging, of course, to yourself as, as much as you can. I thought maybe that's the reason. Otherwise, if you had your arm off, it would just rip it out. It would rip off. <laughs> So I'm following the instructions, and then I'm understanding why she says, hold on to your swimsuit top. Because when we get to the bottom, the way that they stop you from propelling off of the slide is they send water in the opposite direction, and that's what slows you down. Now you can imagine, if you're not holding on to your top, that water would push it up around your neck, and your bottoms would be in a very uncomfortable wedged position. <laughs> So I'm holding on for dear life. I finally came to a stop, and then I realized why she gave that warning. Because I saw about 15 or 20 boys just hanging out down at the bottom of the slide. I was like, I got it now. Now, you noticed, of course, that I said this was the world's second tallest water slide, free fall water slide in the world. So I thought it was just my duty to show you what the tallest water slide in the world is. This is called Insano, <clears throat> and you can even see, well, you can't see it because it's not clear enough, but it says Insano, those dark spots that you see on the, on the slide. And it is in Brazil, stands a staggering 134.5 feet tall with an approximate drop time of five seconds. It claims that riders can reach a speed of 65 miles per hour because why not? You've been there? Oh my goodness, we have to hear your story then later, later this week. Why not build a slide that's even taller and faster to pro propel the body down at high speeds? Why not, right? Well, while in Florida, we also spent a day at Universal Studios, and my 12-year-old loves thrill rides. I mean, if it goes fast, upside down, looks like you're going to fall out, shoot into the sky, or spin out of control, he is all in. My husband, on the other hand, not so good with the rides doesn't like heights, doesn't like to spin, doesn't like to go super fast. And my nine-year-old was just not quite tall enough for these rides. So I, of course, had to go on all these rides with him. To make things worse, he had a button on because it was his birthday. It said, it's my birthday, Will. So every ride that we got in, the person at the front says, oh, it's your birthday, you can ride in front. <laughs> so all day, I'm going on all of these rides with him. And about halfway through the day, he's like, Mom, I really just want Dad to go on one ride. Do you think he'd go on one ride? And I said, I don't know. You, you can ask him. You know, he doesn't really like rides. Well, finally, my husband conceded, all right, I'll go on one ride with you. And it was this one. It's the Incredible Hulk roller coaster. <laughs> it was the only one we hadn't been on. And so as we're walking to it, I can just hear him, Oh, oh, but I'm like, you'll be okay. You'll, they strap you in. There's nothing, nothing will happen. You'll be fine. Well, he goes on this ride and my younger son and I are watching as they come off the ride and he can hardly put a foot in front of another. He is just dizzy. He's green. And I know you're thinking Incredible Hulk ride, you know, then he starts busting out of his shirt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
he looked, he looked sick, and he just kind of walked across the street where they had this little park, and he pulled up a patch of grass, rolled up his sweatshirt behind his head, and said, I'm just going to stay here for a little while. <laughs> so we got him a Sprite, we got him an ice pack from first aid, and we left him there for four hours. <laughs> four hours he did not want to get up. Did not go on a ride for the rest of the time. So it actually physically made him sick. And I'm thinking that night, why do we do this to ourselves? I mean, this is nuts, right? We go on the ride that brings us faster, that's a little bit taller, that's a little bit more out of control, and we just seem to not be able to give, get enough. Why do we go so fast? But today's culture, it's like that's what it expects us to do. Today's culture, going fast and being a little out of control seems to be the only pace, the only acceptable pace to live. A long time ago when I worked as a meteorologist, one of the jobs they gave me, because I just adored kids, is when a tour, when a group would come into the station, I would give them the tour. And so when they got to the meteorology department, I'd show them all the cool things we had, and we also had a Van de Graaff generator, that thing you put your hands on and your hair stands up, and they always think that's really cool. And then they get to, I do this experiment with a hard-boiled egg, you've probably seen it, where you put the hard-boiled egg on top of a bottle where it shouldn't go through, light a match and it sucks it right in, talk about barometric pressure, and they think that's really fun. And then they get to play on the green screen a little bit and point to things in the, in the camera. And so then I sat them down, we were just talking about the four seasons. In fact, Rich just mentioned it this morning, we have these four seasons in Minnesota, and how fun is that, that we get to experience them all. So I was asking a question, okay, so when the sun is at a really steep angle, and we have a long period of daylight and a short time of nightlight, and the earth heats up, what season is that? And of course they said, summer, right? We wish that was here. And then I said, when the sun angle is real shallow, really doesn't give much heat, the days are really short, the nights are long, and the earth cannot heat up, what is that? And they said, this little boy raises his hand and he says, crazy season. <laughs> I'm like, crazy season? What do you mean crazy season? He said, well, my brothers and I, I have three brothers, we, the four of us, we all play hockey. So my mom said that summer is lazy season and winter is crazy season. And I, I didn't know it at the time because I didn't have children, but now I have two kids in hockey and a husband who coaches, and I'm telling you what, winter is crazy season. It gets a little nuts because we're running at this pace that we cannot possibly sustain the whole year through. So thankfully, that crazy season comes to an end. But let's face it. Slowing down is not something that we do well. It's really hard to just stop. We tend to equate this uh, laziness, we tend to equate not being busy with being lazy. And we tend to equate being busy with being holy. Just think about how you answer that question when someone says, hey, how you doing? You're like, it's busy. You know, I got this project at work. You know, we're going to this family fest thing. Um, my kids are studying real hard. I'm driving them all over the place. Oh my goodness, it's crazy. I'm busy. You would probably never say, well, you know, I took a day off, woke up late, watched a couple game shows, <laughs> stayed in my pajamas, then took my kids to a movie. Yeah, it's good. Life is good. I mean, how many times do you hear that? Unless someone's in college and maybe... <laughs> You might hear that, I get that from some of my students. 
Well, you think that that person might be lazy. In his book, Addicted to Hurry, Kirk, I'm so sorry, Joe. I, this, my hair does not like this. All right. In his book, Addicted to Hurry, Kirk Byron Jones contends that speed is accepted as the regulating ideal of American life. People are so anxious to get on with whatever it is that they have going that they have absolutely no time for relationships. In fact, he says, when hurry becomes a chronic condition, when we run even though there's no reason to, when we rush even while performing the most mundane tasks, it may be said that we've become addicted to hurry. Jones offers a few telling questions that we're supposed to ask ourselves to see if we are indeed addicted to hurry. <laughs> now, you don't have to raise any hands here, but just think about how you might answer these situations. He says, you're probably addicted to hurry if, when you're at the grocery store, you choose one checkout line over another because not only does it look shorter, but you've taken the time to scan and count the contents of the carts of the people waiting in line. He said you might really be addicted to hurry if once you choose a line, you're still watching that other line where you might have chosen to see if that person gets through faster. He said you may be addicted to hurry if when entering an on-ramp, you get frustrated and downright angry if you choose one line that you thought was shorter and find out the other line was actually shorter. He said you might be addicted to hurry if, after that encounter, you weave through traffic just to get past that person who didn't even know that they accidentally got in front of you in the first place. He said you might be addicted to hurry if you multitask to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. I do this all the time. This Christmas, I served a meal, 20 people, opened presents, played games, stayed up late, got up in the morning, made breakfast, and it was only then that I opened the oven and found the green bean casserole. <laughs> Didn't even know that I forgot it. Experts say that our addiction to hurry is literally killing us. Dr. Robert Levine writes that while men have the most coronary disease, women are not far behind. He said our addiction to hurry is affecting our hearts in more ways than one. And if we're really honest with ourselves, a lot of us would probably admit, maybe we are a little addicted to hurry. We tend to work to give our lives what we think that it needs. We want the great job and the great house and the nice car. We want enough money so our kids can have the coaching and the training that they need to be successful in life. And of course, they need to go to the best schools and have Ugg boots while doing it and beats headphones that they put on and walk around in the house so they can be oblivious to anything that I have to say. <laughs> we work and we plan and we schedule so that we can achieve this life that we think that we want, but our soul is just pulling for something else. It's pulling for rest and relationship. I mean, if we're real honest with ourselves, we might be willing to admit that sometimes, oftentimes, we do feel a little bit stressed that the pace we're running from place to place or opportunity to opportunity is taking a toll on us. I mean, how many of you would you say that you occasionally or maybe pretty often feel, feel some stress? How many would say that in the last 12 hours you had a little additional stress, either because you were packing up to come here or closing up loose ends at work so that you could come here? Or maybe the stress came last month when you opened up the visa bill like we did and said, why did we buy so much stuff for Christmas? Or the stress might come in having to write out that tuition bill for the second half of college or school. Or maybe the stress is in putting my swimsuit in my suitcase thinking I might have to get in a pool after four months with no sun on Scandinavian skin. It's not good. 
So stress comes in all different ways. It, comes, it may be really serious stress. It might be a little lighthearted stress. But I'm curious as to how many people might say, I just wish I had a little more time. I find myself praying that prayer over and over. God, just expand my time. And I feel like he's saying, stop doing things that cause me to have to expand your time. I see a lot of people nodding or laughing when I ask these questions because we do live in this culture that refuses to slow down. And if we really think about it, that's not the way that we want to live our lives. And it's certainly not the way that God wants us to live our lives. The good news is, like many of the problems that we encounter in life, God does have something to say about this. He has a lot to say about it. And maybe you're a person who knows every story in the Bible and you could recite things at will. Maybe you're a person who is just kind of new to this and you're picking up the Bible for the first time or you're somewhere in between. And it doesn't matter because I think everyone who believes in God knows that at one point in time, he wrote out a little list. He called them commandments. And they were things that he wanted his people to follow so that others would know that his people were different. Because he came into this world where people were following all kinds of gods and doing all kinds of crazy things. And he said, here's the deal. I'm going to set up this set of guidelines that I want you to follow so people will say, hey, that person, they're different. They must be gods. So he writes out these commandments. And they said things like, hey, I want you to honor me first and foremost, that you would honor me, the one true God. And then don't make anyone else an idol over me. Worship me and only me. Then he said, talk respectfully about me to other people. Don't use my name in a bad way. Don't use my name in a disparaging way. Talk respectfully about me. And those first three commandments were all about how we should look to God. But the fourth one is actually something we should do. And he directs this one. He says, one day a week, I want you to rest. One day a week, I want you to just, Friday night comes around, set everything aside, put everything away, and for 24 hours, I want you to rest. Once a week. I want you to do this for me. And we know this was important to God because not only did he command it, but he modeled it. And we learn that early on in the Bible. In fact, Genesis chapter two, we read about how God created the world and everything in it. It took him six days to do that. And on the seventh day, he rested. And it's probably not because his body was tired and he's got to lay on the couch for a few hours, watch some sports center, you know. That's probably not what he was thinking. But he looked at the work he had done. He looked at everything he could get done in those six days and then said, okay, now it's time to look at what's happened and renew. It's time to get renewed. And so when we think about rest, you can imagine him telling these Israelites who work, 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 and toil, toil, toil. You can imagine the pushback that they got. God said, all right, here's the deal. Once a week, you don't do any work. And they're like, yeah, but I, I got to plant and harvest and I have a farm and I got I to gotta produce. No, no, no. He said, put that away. Just let it go. But, but I have to clean the house and gather food and I need to get some things done. Nope. For once a week, 24 hours, that's all I ask. I want you to rest. Enjoy your family. 
Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy you. Spend some time with me. One day a week, I want you to do this. God says today, just stop because I want a chance to refuel you. You've done your work. You've done what you needed to do. Now, rest. There's this beautiful Jewish ceremony that symbolizes what it means to see Sabbath rest. At the culmination of this ceremony called the Havdalah, they place a cup on top of a saucer and they fill it. And they don't just fill it to the top. They fill it so that all of the liquid spills over into the saucer so that even the saucer is full. And what they're trying to say there is during the Sabbath, we have allowed ourselves to be full. We have allowed God to fill us, to restore us, to redeem us. And out of that overflow is how we serve other people. Out of the overflow is what we use to work. The overflow is what we use to talk to those who mean the most to us. The overflow is how we live our lives. But God has filled the cup. Think about if on Monday, or whichever day that you decide to have your Sabbath, think about if on that day you started with a cup that was full. Because I don't know about you, but by Tuesday or Wednesday, like I'm just trying to get those last couple of drops. But he said, no, no, no. Start the week with it full. And use what's left. Use the overflow, because I've filled your cup, to serve and communicate with other people. Think about it this way. What if resting were not to forsake our responsibilities, but if resting were actually for the sake of our responsibilities, so that we can do what we're called to do, so that we can work to our highest potential, so that we can communicate with those we love, so that we can be able to let God fill that cup. So when I'm trying to restore my soul, when I'm trying to refuel, there are a couple different ways I do that. I am an introvert to the core. So if I can just spend some time alone, that is a way I can just restore my soul. I can spend time reading a book. I can spend time reading God's word. I can spend time on my bike going as fast as I can. That's a way that I get to restore. But the other way that I love to restore my soul is to put all of those responsibilities away and just spend time with my kids, to give them my full attention. And there's always like a lecture in the back of my head or 15 papers that I have to correct. And I have to consciously and deliberately disengage from that to spend time just with my kids. And that fills me up because it's a way to be able to invest in them and see who they really are. It's when I have to willfully disengage and faithfully set aside time, knowing that God will respond, knowing that God will answer me, answer that time that I've given him by filling my cup. Pastor Brady Boyd has written a book called Addicted to Busy, and he says it this way, by choosing the Sabbath, We are literally protesting and rebelling against our innate desire to trust and worship our own self-sufficiency. Let that sink in for a minute. We are protesting and rebelling against our innate desire to trust and worship our own self-sufficiency. It goes back to that second commandment that we shouldn't worship other things over God, and yet we tend to worship our own self-sufficiency over him. By choosing rest, we're literally rebelling against our own desire to produce. 
We're willfully setting a time to say, God, it's important to you, so I'm going to do it. And God in response says, I'll fill that cup. And you're like, yeah, 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 Joe, you don't know my life. You know, you've got two kids. I have four. You have one job. I have three. Your husband's awesome. I have to deal with this. <laughs> but it's not about you or me or a contest to see who has this more stressful life because everyone's is going to be different. And I'm going to guess if we sat down together or you sat down with six other people here and just talked about your lives, that everyone would have a differing idea of what it means to rest, but that everyone would have the same idea that we need it. Finding rest is about figuring out a way to function in a society that's addicted to hurry, addicted to productivity, because we live in a culture that just doesn't it just doesn't celebrate slowing down. But amidst the season of crazy, God has another way. He says, I value rest. I value it so much that I'm going to model it, and then I'm going to command it. I'm going to command it so that when people look at you, when people say, oh, that person follows God, that they are going to see that you live differently. Because let's face it, we function better physically when we're well-rested. We function better emotionally when we're well-rested. We function better spiritually when we're well-rested, when our minds aren't overloaded and rushing between the zillions of things that we have to do. I have a friend who works as a general practice physician, and she said that both as a med student and an intern at the hospital, they were conditioned to function on very little rest. She would do 72-hour shifts at the hospital, and she said, I would see a patient and I was so unable to focus on what it was that they were saying was wrong with them that I would just order tests. I would order test after test, just hoping that I would get a piece of paper that diagnosed for me what was wrong with this person. She said, then I started my own practice and I worked from 8 to 5.30. And all of a sudden, I would sit and have a conversation with a person and I would hear what they said. And my mind would be able to think, oh, this is what's wrong with them. She said, I might order one test, maybe two tests to confirm what I, what I know or what I figured out in my own brain was wrong. All of a sudden, when you're well-rested, your mind can function so much better. You have time to focus on what that person is saying. Most of us would also have to admit that relationships need focus, too. Our relationships need time, too. It's not too difficult to see that when we take time out of this crazy, busy schedule that we have to spend time with people that we care about, when we turn off the TV and put away the phone and stop watching YouTube videos, that we actually have some relationships to build right there. Just think about your own life and how you are towards others when you're thinking about what you have coming up next. I think about my patience level when my kids get home from school and I'm just not quite done with the work that I was trying to get done before they walked in the door. And I've had to learn to set that aside and listen to what they have to say, because they might only talk to me for like 10 seconds. So I got to make that 10 seconds really good. I got a great comic from a friend a couple of weeks ago that I want you to see, talking about cell phones and media and not paying attention. <laughs> and this is not gender specific. I'm just as bad at this as anybody else is. But isn't it true that sometimes we have a better relationship with our phone than we do with the person who's sitting right next to us? 
And I, you know, you're probably thinking, I've tried to do this. I have tried to schedule time, I've tried to time block, I've tried to put my phone away, all these things. It just doesn't work. I've tried to make this time with God. You know, people say you're supposed to do like an hour. I've tried 10 minutes. I can't do anything. But here's the deal. I know you're here because you care about your family. I know that you're here because you care about your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse. I know that you're here because you want to learn to communicate better with them. And what better time, somehow you need to figure out a time to shut it down or to turn it off and give yourself a chance to refuel. And I know this isn't new information. Nobody's going to post on Facebook this afternoon, I figured it out. I heard the most amazing thing. We're supposed to take time out to rest, spend time with God, and spend time with the people we love. No one would like it. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So why don't we do it? We get it. We know it. It's something we know would improve our lives, but somehow we don't do it. I've got a great friend, someone I've known for over 25 years, who is a nutrition consultant. She majored in nutrition. She's also one of those people who, even in college, was like, I just got to lose five pounds. I mean, if I could just lose five pounds, it'd be a little bit better. And then it became 10 pounds. And then, you know, we both have kids. We're, you know, approaching middle age and She's like, all right, now I got to lose about 45 pounds. And the thing is, she is brilliant. She is wise. She has helped me so much. We were just having a great conversation about artificial sweetener and metabolism, which is fascinating, by the way. And finally, I just couldn't hold back anymore. And I said, Sarah, you are so brilliant. You have helped me so much with many of the things that you've taught me. Why don't you do it? And she looked right at me, and with tears in her eyes, she said, I am afraid. And I said, of what? To feel better? She said, no, I'm just afraid. If I apply principles that I've taught you and other people in my life, that my life is going to be unrecognizable. She said, if I apply healthy eating habits, I might not be able to go out with my friends every weekend go to a fun restaurant, drink some wine. I'm going to have to change that. I won't be able to meet my dad once a week at that greasy cafe where we have hamburgers and French fries. and It's awesome. I don't want to lose that. And then if I get skinny, I'm going to want to stay skinny. And that's going to be a whole battery of things that's going to be wrong with my life then. I'm afraid to change all those things of what my life would look like. I think if we get real honest, there might be something inside us as well. That if we sit down and take a step back and stop, we might have just a little bit of fear that things won't happen the way that we want them to. If we're real honest with ourselves, we just don't trust God to pull up the slack. We don't trust him that if we set our work aside, that he'll give us time to get it done. We don't trust him that if we spend three days up north while someone else does our business, that our business won't fall apart. We don't trust him that if we invest that time in our relationships, that he will actually grow those relationships. And maybe if we're real honest, we don't trust that that time we invest with him will bring the type of reward that we think it should.
we don't trust that the life he has purposed for us is actually the one that we want to live. The psalmist has great advice for us here. And when I'm getting anxious, which happens often, I always pull this one up from the back of my mind. It's Psalm 46.10 and it says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and exalted among the earth. I love the message translation of this one. It says, step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. Be still and know that I'm God. Because it's only in being still that we get to step out of our crazy, busy life, of that crazy season, and look up and know that he's going to take care of everything while we are being still. And it's in the stillness that we actually get to know him. And it's in the stillness that we can learn to trust him. Hundreds of years later, Jesus shows up and he says, forget all that stuff. No, I'm kidding. He says, what I want you to do is rest. He confirms this importance of rest. He models it in the way that he acts himself. He'll be out doing, doing ministry. He takes time away. And then he teaches his followers that they also need to find rest for their souls. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I don't know about you, but I would like to live freely and lightly. Jesus says, watch how I do it. Learn from me. Trust me. I'm not going to lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, but you need to trust me. Because rest is not to forsake our responsibilities. Rest is given for the sake of our responsibilities. We can do more, than when, we can do more when we're full. So what would it look like if for three days you said, all right, I am going to trust you. I am going to rest physically as much as you can with kids. I'm going to rest physically as a way to honor the body you gave me. I'm going to rest emotionally by setting aside all the responsibilities that I have and trusting that you're going to take care of them. And I'm going to rest spiritually too by taking, even if it's just time to step out of the traffic for a few minutes and look up and realize who he is and why you are here. What would it look like if you allowed yourself to get everything that God has for you this weekend by focusing your attention on him? If for three days you made space for relationships, for your spouse, to have a conversation with him or her that doesn't have to do with to-dos or where you need to go or what was forgotten? What if you had a conversation with your kids as, as well as you can about what's going on in their lives or took that time in the car to shut things down and give each other a chance to connect? Would that bring you rest? What if you could diagnose what's going on with someone else because your mind actually had the capacity to do so? What would it look like if for three days you rested, 
trusting that God would take care of all the things that are on your list. This weekend, we're going to spend some time learning about a people, a group of people from the Bible who spent many years searching for this promised area of rest. A group of people who started off their journey with just the greatest of intentions, the greatest plan, the greatest leader, and then fell short because they simply couldn't trust God. And we're not just going to talk about rest. I am not going to be leading you in guided meditation. I'm not going to be talking about nap time. I'm not even going to talk about journaling, because did you know that Jesus never journaled? (laughs) So I'm going to take the pressure off of you right here. But if that works for you, great. What we're going to look at is how our circumstances lead us into the question of how much we actually trust God. And I'm hoping that as we look at our inability to rest, our inability to wait, and our inability to call on God when we are afraid. What does that tell us about our relationship with him and what we really believe that he can do? So I hope that as we learn their story and learn stories of other people, that you'll get to learn a little bit more about your own story as well and that you'll be willing to share that with other people. So I just want to invite you this weekend to spend some time restoring your soul. And this process might look different for every single person and for every single family. Maybe the restoring for you takes, takes place in the uninterrupted time you get with your family. I know that's always restoring for me. Maybe restoring your soul has to do with just taking time to read a devotion in the morning or pray with the person that you came with. Maybe restoring your soul is just stepping out of traffic every once in a while and saying, God, I trust you. I trust that the things are going to get done at home so I can spend time here. Let this weekend be more about being here. Let this weekend be about renewing your soul so that when you leave here, your cup has spilled over and you can live out of the excess. I know we have to get to small groups, but I just want to end with a prayer. This is the Jewish blessing of Sabbath, what they would say at the end. So let me just pray that. It's called Shabbat Shalom. May God be in your rest. May you find God in your rest, and may you find rest in God alone. Shabbat shalom to all of you. Amen.